are you eating? I'm not eating, I'm chewing. Chewing what? Gum. It's traditional. I had the replicator create some. They just chewed it? No, they infused the gum with flavor. What did you infuse it with? Scotch. Here, try some. You got to run on first, you got to run on second. One away. Ground ball to second baseman. Kira, what do you do? Uh, I go for the double play. Unless the runner on third is already on his way home. In which case, okay, relax and keep your weight on the balls of your feet. Back elbow, up. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. My guest today is Dr. Jason Von Steetz, who holds the distinction of being the very first psychologist on the show. Jason has a PhD in clinical psychology and works as a sports psychologist at Whittier College and at the Cognitive Behavior Therapy of Southern California. Jason is a longtime listener of Strange New Worlds and reached out to me about being a guest on the show. I finally got to meet him during my recent trip to SoCal, and we grabbed breakfast at the Art and Science Cafe in Pasadena. Together, we're going to dive into the mental side of sports, and how that relates to all sorts of fun pieces of the Star Trek universe, from Tilly's command track training, to the Deep Space Niners showdown against the Logicians, to Picard's face-offs with the Borg. But first, let's get to know Jason a little bit. So Jason, could you tell me what a sports psychologist does? Sure, sure. So this is pretty broad, but we work with athletes and uh, any way that their performance might be impaired by their thoughts or their emotions, so if they're having self-doubts, if they're having a lot of anxiety, if they're having difficulty focusing, we can help them to perform to the best of their ability. Um, And then also, uh, speaking pretty broadly, just mental health issues in general. Uh, So athletes are people and they get depressed just like anybody else. They struggle with substance issues just like other people. Um, They have relationship issues. So I also work with, you know, athletes on just a variety of mental health issues. And then we also do a lot of, because I I work with individual athletes and then I also work with, with teams. So we can do a lot of team bonding. Team cohesion can be very important for, for teams to be able to work together and like and function and solve problems together. Uh, so team building um, activities can be really, really great to help them to get to get along better and then also to have like a, a safer, low pressure way of practicing all of their mental skills. So all the mental skills that they use in a competition, they can also use in just kind of a silly team building game and they can do it in a low pressure environment and then that will translate to them being able to do it in a more high pressure situation. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So I feel like 
most of the listeners for Strange mm-hmm. New Worlds aren't, um, you know, professional athletes right. or maybe didn't even play uh, sports in college. Sure. But uh, but at, at some point, you know, everybody has sort of played a sport. And mm-hmm. sometimes um, in other professional environments, mm-hmm. people will decide to play games mm-hmm. or do some kind of sport-like yeah. activity to yeah. form that kind of team cohesion, that right. bond in a different professional environment. Right. Is that something that... Uh, that that is like recommended for, sure. for for people to do. Like, should do you think Starfleet crews should do sports more often, like intramural, intership sports, right. j- just the way that Deep Space Nine had their crew form this baseball team and then play against the logicians? Is that something that you would prescribe to uh, Starfleet as part of an activity that they should do? Sure, absolutely. And in a lot of ways, they kind of do. If you think about like Next Generation and and how they'll just have these games in the hollow uh, I almost said hollow suite in the holodeck yeah and or you know uh, Picard will or maybe uh, Data will uh, do like these Sherlock Holmes um, episodes where he's practicing solving problems he's practicing getting to know people who might be hostile or who might be friendly or Picard is you know acting as a detective Dixon something I can't quite remember yeah but, yeah, but he's He's, pra- he's having fun, but he's also problem-solving. He's finding out who the bad guy is. He's finding out who the innocent people are and who need help. So in a lot of ways, they are kind of playing these games and practicing these same types of sports psychology skills. And then if they were to maybe formalize it a little bit more and, and do more traditional sports, I think that would I think that would also be a great opportunity to practice working together as a team and focusing under pressure and, and, and just be fun in general too. Right. I feel mm-hmm. like especially for the case of a character like Data, it's mm-hmm. also learning in a low stakes environment how mm-hmm. to interact socially with right. other people. So in in Star Trek Discovery, mm-hmm. we don't have any instances of team sports mm-hmm. yet, mm-hmm. but we do see Ensign Tilly training, right. you know, she's running around yeah. the ship. As a sports psychologist, is there a big difference in the psychology mm-hmm. between individual sports and mm-hmm. team sports? Do, do you handle those types of athletes differently? Do they come up with different problems? Yeah, that's really interesting. So a couple things that I've just noticed from my own, you know, anecdotal experience, um, when I work with more of a team sport like uh, softball or soccer, there's already a lot of team cohesion, strong team cohesion already. Uh, they are constantly working together to solve problems. They already have leaders set in place. And when those leaders speak, like team captains, the rest of the team gets to work right away. And then I've worked with other teams or other sports that are more individual, like track and field is an example. In track, they might not even know each other's names because it's (laughs) such a huge sport or such a huge team with all these different events, all these different um, times where they practice, like distance runners might practice early in the morning and then shot putters might practice in the afternoon and they might not even be together that often. So they don't know each other's names. They're not used to all you know, 60 of them getting on the same page just like that at the drop of a hat and working together to solve a problem. There's probably not one leader that they all listen to. And in those individual sports, there's very different events where the mental skills that a distance runner needs is going to be very different from the mental skills of a long jumper. 
So let me try to bring it back to Tilly, to Edson Tilly. The mental skills that she would need as an individual to like work on her goal of getting into command and becoming a captain eventually, that's going to be different than someone working on team goals. Like if an away team goes on a mission, they all need to work together to make that one objective come out the way they want. But Edson Tilly is working on becoming a commander, so she would want to work on leadership skills, decision-making skills, maybe calculating when to take risks appropriately versus an away team who might want to work on all being on the same page at the same time and um, finding maybe the safest way to get to complete their objective and then get back to the ship quickly and safely. So it's, it's a little bit different. Yeah, yeah it almost seems like the running regiment that mm-hmm. Tilly is on isn't really helping her mm. learn leadership abilities. <laughs> right. Maybe it's just there mm. to uh, ensure that people in the command training program are like very determined because right. they can run long distances and not let their uh, mental state sort of waver. Yeah, that, that is true. That's a good point. One of the things, and I, I don't necessarily know from experience because I wasn't a distance runner, but one of the things that comes up in distance running is um, pain tolerance. <laughs> running, running long distance is very painful. So you need to be able to sustain your focus for a long period of time. And you need to be able to manage that pain, the pain in your side, the pain in your legs. It's not pleasant. Uh, and you need to just keep pushing through that in order to achieve your goal. So it sounds like that could be very helpful for a commander. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually a very good insight. Mm-hmm. So if I were also in the command training program mm-hmm. as an ensign and I came to you and I said, I don't know how to manage this pain. Like I get mm. halfway through this marathon and right. I just am falling apart and I just can't push forward. Right. Uh, how would you, what would you say to me to um, help me overcome that? Sure. Let's see. So there's lots of different approaches. Um, one of the approaches that I always like to kind of incorporate into the work that I do with teams or individual athletes is uh, something called value-driven behavior, and that's in comparison to emotionally-driven behavior. So that's pretty simple and straightforward and exactly what it sounds like. So emotionally-driven behavior is when an athlete or maybe, you know, an ensign is influenced by their emotions. So someone gets mad at coach and then skips practice. Someone feels discouraged, so they stop running. They stop the, the command training program. And then the flip side is the value-driven behavior where someone thinks, okay, even though I'm mad at coach, I still value being a good team member, so I'm going to go to practice so that my team can have me there to support and to fulfill my role, you know, and I'll be a good team member. Or, you know, an ensign might feel discouraged, might feel like giving up, but they might value just the overall values of Starfleet, they might value self-improvement. So then even though I feel this pain, I'm going to keep running. I'm going to keep, you know, engaging in this training program. And it sounds a little easier said than done, but you would want to get really clear on exactly what your values are. And then you would want to map out, like, what are the barriers that could come up and just kind of distract you from those values. And then you would just think... How do you overcome those barriers and what specific actions do you need to do 
to live in alignment with those values. So getting really clear on that will help you so that you don't succumb to the emotion of the moment and instead you behave in alignment with those values. That's awesome. So it yeah. sounds like it's trying to block out the pain by remembering mm-hmm the real reason why you're doing this and right. putting yourself through it. And it's for some kind of higher purpose, which right. is to become the best Starfleet officer that you can be so that right. you can lead a team of Starfleet officers on really amazing, dangerous missions and explore right. strange new worlds. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Okay. Great. Two more laps before breakfast. I've done 10. You still need to shave 6.5 seconds off of your time. Six seconds really matter? 6.5. Yes, they matter if you're ever going to make captains. In my experience, that when I lack in athletic ability, I more than make up for in intelligence and personality. We may want to focus on those attributes. Everyone applying to the command training program will be smart. Personality doesn't count. That's just something people with no personality say. Wait, which in no way means you, you absolutely have a personality. 6.5 seconds is not an arbitrary number. Your new time will earn you a physical endurance commendation. Today, your goal is 6.5 seconds. Then, getting a transfer on a constitution class like the Enterprise. After that, first officer track. See your path, stay on it, reach your destination. Cadet to captain, just like that. What's it gonna be, Tilly? So it sounds like you have watched all sorts of Star Trek, from Deep Space Nine to uh, TNG, and also you're you're pretty up-to-date with Discovery. Um, How did you get into Star Trek, and uh, what's your relationship to the show? Yeah, that's... I've been thinking about that, and it's kind of hard to pin down. Uh, I know that... Like, my dad watched Star Trek, so then when I was a little kid, I watched Star Trek, uh, mainly uh, The Next Generation, and I I had some action figures. I, I remember for sure I had a Commander Riker, I think being like a little boy, and then seeing, you know, tall, strong, confident Commander Riker. I, 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 loved, I loved him. He was one of my favorite characters. And then I'm pretty sure I had a Geordi LaForge um, action figure. And then he had a cool visor, and he was smart, <laughs> and he was nice. In another world, he reads to kids. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I liked that, too. Uh, then I had uh, a toy tricorder, you know, like one of those little flip tricorder toys. And it's hard to remember, like, exactly what episodes like, I, I really liked. And then looking back as an adult, this is going to sound kind of goofy, but I really liked that episode where that oil monster gets Tasha Yar. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Or maybe I didn't necessarily like it, but I remember the oil monster just freaked me out, and it was uh-huh. scary, and it got Riker, and it filled him up with oil, and that was scary, and then it killed Tasha Yar, and that was freaking me out. So that's sort of like, you know, just like etched in my mind forever like as a little kid. And then now, as an adult, I think once I was in my uh, PhD program, I just... I don't know why, but I started just thinking back to uh, The Next Generation. I just wanted to check it out again. So I went on Netflix, there it was, and I think I saw an article that said it was going to leave Netflix, so then I started just binge-watching all these episodes, (laughs) and then it turned out that it wasn't leaving, and maybe it was only leaving in the UK or something, Mm -hmm. but then I just got on this roll, and then it just became a habit where I was just always trying to get in an episode of Next Gen. And I just, you know, just loved it again, got really, you know, caught up in it and loved Picard. And I loved how, like, 
how ethical and how philosophical and intelligent he was. And he's sort of like the perfect leader, at least in my mind. And uh, yeah, then that just like brought me back into the world of Star Trek. That's excellent. Yeah. Jason and I decided to rewatch the episode of Deep Space Nine called Take Me Out to the Hollow Suite, which is definitely the episode of Star Trek with the biggest use of sport. In this episode, Captain Sisko forms a baseball team on Deep Space Nine to do battle with an all-Vulcan team led by his longtime arch-rival, Captain Solok. Of all the episodes of Deep Space Nine, this is probably the one I've seen the most number of times. Now, I know it's not necessarily regarded as the best episode of the series, nor is it particularly good sci-fi, but in the midst of the dark wartime plots of the later seasons of DS9, this episode was a breath of levity. And when I want to put on an episode of DS9 now, just to have fun and make me smile and laugh, not to watch a whole marathon of this grand evolving story arc, it's almost always take me out to the hollow suite. Plus, I love baseball, and I just can't get over the fact that Ben Sisko wears a San Francisco Giants cap in the episode. That's my hometown team, of course. Anyway, this episode was ripe with all kinds of sports psychology to analyze. So let's dive right in. One thing that I really loved about this episode upon my rewatch mm. was how Lita and Rom wanted mm. to try out for the team because mm. Rom's son, Nog, mm-hmm. was going to play. And they thought it would be a really great family bonding experience. Mm-hmm. And I, I certainly experienced mm. that kind of bonding through mm-hmm. sports when I was a kid. So I was mm-hmm. wondering if you had any sports that you played and that you mm-hmm. were super fond of or maybe that you still play. Sure, sure. Awesome. So when I was a little kid, well, I come from a sort of a, a family with a, a history of uh, competing in sports. My great-grandfather was a champion weightlifter in Java. I don't really necessarily know how much he lifted, but I've seen the old-timey pictures of him holding up a barbell with like spherical weights on the end. Uh, my grandma referred to him as the strongest man in Java, which I don't know if it's true, but you know he looked pretty strong. Um, my dad was a, a good uh, track and field athlete in high school. Uh, he broke some of our high school's uh, records in track and field. And um, as a as a little kid, my dad would would jog a lot, and he would go to uh, the track. Uh, I can't remember if it was a local high school or like a local community college. And then I would just be in the, the sand pit for the long jump, just kind of playing, and then seeing my dad run by every once in a while. And I think that was like a really nice bonding experience for me. And then as an athlete, I definitely competed in a lot of sports myself. I wrestled in high school, I ran track, I played football, I did um, track and field at Citrus College. After that, I competed in weightlifting for a while. I had a great weightlifting coach who used to coach Olympic athletes, and he himself was coached by Tommy Kono, who's considered the greatest American weightlifter of all time. And so you're sort of his, like, grandson right, in a way. <laughs> right, exactly. So I get to be a part of that lineage, which is awesome. Yeah. And then more recently, I started uh, training in, in sumo wrestling at USA Sumo Club, which is in Torrance, and that's just, like, been a fun experience, just, um, you know, getting a great workout in, doing this 
this different thing that I've never been exposed to. So yeah, I just I love training. I love being involved in sports, and it's yeah, it's, it's been great and a part of my kind of family history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's amazing. And mm-hmm. like you said, it's it's a real history right i Mm -hmm. i i'm into sports mainly because like my dad loved playing baseball and we would go to the park and we'd hit the ball Mm -hmm. and we'd play basketball too Mm -hmm. uh and then later on when i decided to switch to soccer Mm -hmm. he also picked up soccer and started um um, refereeing Mm -hmm. and also coaching so he never coached me but he coached my younger sister so like he learned that sport too so there's this whole like family bonding experience Mm -hmm. over sports which is really great so I'm just wondering, help me speculate here. Sure. You know, human society is just mm-hmm. so infused with sport. It's like yeah. such a big part of our culture, no matter yeah. where you are from around mm-hmm. this globe. Do you think alien cultures like the Vulcans, mm. would sports be almost like a universal cultural aspect yeah. um, for other civilizations out there? Right. That's an awesome question. I actually think it, it would be universal uh, in many ways. So if you think about like why humans compete in sport... Um, one, it's really fun, and then two, it also like it helps them to test the limits of their abilities. They get to find out how good they can get at something. They get to practice things like hard work, discipline, cooperating with others, working for a long time to achieve a goal, like a dream goal that they have, and just really putting everything that they have into it. That's a great experience for a lot of people. And now if we look at other like Vulcans, for example, I would imagine that they would also have all kinds of like the sports and things that we just haven't heard about yet. If you look at what Vulcans value, they value logic, obviously, and uh, so I would imagine, and we know that they're very strong too. Uh, so I would imagine that Vulcans probably have some kind of sport where it's got to be physical, but they really test their logic and and Vulcan youth can get into it in order to help them develop hard work and logic and determination and all those things. And I kind of picture it being kind of like American Ninja Warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Where there's like this crazy obstacle course and then the Vulcan looks at it and then determines this will be the most logical way to, to get across this obstacle course. So I could imagine that Vulcans would need to, like, you know, be in a dangerous situation, but within the realm of sports, probably, but you know, semi-dangerous or with the risk of losing, the risk of being disqualified from the game, and they would need to solve problems, figure out, you know, what angle is the sun hitting the thing, and you know? <laughs> so I could imagine that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, Vulcan Ninja Warrior <laughs> coming to CBS All yeah. Access. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. So you're right. Vulcans are definitely way mm-hmm. stronger than humans, mm-hmm. and this has been attributed in the canon to the fact that mm-hmm. Vulcan is a much more massive planet, mm-hmm. so the gravity is stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Cisco brings together his band of mm-hmm. colleagues who are all not Vulcans, mm-hmm. and uh, he has to sort of motivate them mm-hmm. to rise to the mm-hmm. challenge. So he gives this very mm-hmm. excellent motivational speech at their first practice. Yeah. day of practice and it's an exciting time i'm arriving oh yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah there we go there we go that's the spirit now first let me introduce you to our pitcher and our secret weapon jake the slider cisco <laughs> good luck jake. Slider, very nice. <laughs> now all the other positions are still open for tryouts now every one of you here today has seen at least one baseball game with me in the hollow suite now i know 
It looks simple. You throw the ball, you catch the ball, you hit the ball. But it is not that easy. It's a difficult game. It was a difficult game to play even for seasoned professionals who spent their lifetime practicing. And now we have less than two weeks to build a team and to face the opponent. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. How are we going to beat the logicians? They're all Vulcans. They're stronger and faster than any one of us. Except for Worf and our genetically enhanced doctor. But there is more to baseball than physical strength. It's a... It's about courage. And it's also about faith. And it is also about heart. And if there's one thing our Vulcan friends lack, it's heart. I think we can beat them. I know we can beat them. Yeah. Uh, we are going to beat them. Am I right? Yes. Yeah. I can't hear you. Yes. yes. Are we going to beat the Vulcans? I can't hear you. Yes. All right, then. Let's play some baseball. Yeah, just a little, uh, and catch. Nice and easy. I'm wondering what percentage of somebody's mm. performance in a sport is based on their raw physical abilities, mm-hmm. and what percentage is really based on intangible things sure. like courage and heart and your mental state? That's a great question, and one of the things that kind of comes to mind is that I think in the past the mental side of sports was considered much more intangible or something that you didn't even want to talk about. You either have it or you don't. If somebody doesn't have it, there's really nothing that they can do about it, and uh you know, you, pro- you might not give them a second look, uh, but now the mental game or the mental side of sports is considered much more tangible. You know, there's evidence-based approaches to sports psychology. There's a lot of studies showing that mindfulness and focusing on the task at hand is really great for being mindful or focused on the task in sports. So if you can practice mindfulness, then you can be in the present moment when you're competing and under pressure, and you can do the, you can focus on what you need to focus on instead of focusing on the people of the stands or the people heckling you or who text messaged you right before a game <laughs> or, or something like that. And then there's biofeedback where before you wouldn't have control over certain physiological processes, but now you can do biofeedback and then gain that control or at least exercise, kind of exercise that system and then be able to be much more calm under pressure and focused. Um, So now the mental side is much more tangible. But at the same time, like the mental side only does so much. So if the mental side was everything, then people with PhDs in sports psychology would be winning all the Olympics, Uh, all the Super Bowls, you know, all that stuff. So it's really helpful, but then there's still, you know, there's still the physical side, there's still technical skills you need to learn, there's still, you know, nutrition and all these other factors. And then I also want to say, because I think it's really interesting, the farther away you are from a competition, the less important the mental side is. You know, if a competition is really far away, you can do all this training, you know, all this physical training that's going to help you later on. But as the competition approaches, the physical side is less important and the mental side becomes more important. Because when it's the week before a competition, 
there's not a lot you can do to get stronger. There's not a lot you can do to get faster. If it's the night before, if it's, you know, if you're staring up at your bed trying to get some sleep, working out is not going to help you. You can do a lot to hurt your performance. You can go out and drink to cope with the stress. You can be in your room doing push-ups, trying to get stronger, but you're just going to be tired the next day. So that's the time we need to be alone with your thoughts and just be calm and wait for the competition. And then once the competition starts, you already did all the training, you already did everything you can, and now it's just allowing your, your body to take over and just do all the things that you practiced. So that's when the mental side is really important because if you're in a game already, you're not going to just step outside the game and then practice something a bunch of times and then come back better. It's already done. Right. It's Now it's just the mental side and just you just being able to do what you need to do. Totally, yeah, yeah. yeah. I liked what you said about mindfulness mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you can comment on Cisco's mm. deciding to turn the holographic crowd off yeah. at the beginning of the baseball game between mm -hmm. the Deep Space Niners and the Logicians. Yeah. And then his, his his decision to turn the crowd back on yeah. for Rom's at bat at the yeah. very end of the game. Do you have any comments on, on that? Sure, sure. That was good decision making on the part of Cisco to turn off the crowd. Because like, like he said it all, like his team has never practiced with the uh, with a crowd. And um, if you're not an expert at a task and people are watching you, then studies show you're going to do worse at that task. Interesting. Yeah. And then if you are an expert at the task, then people watching generally helps your performance. Huh. So, so that's <laughs> interesting. So it's a, it was a great idea to turn off the crowd. And then later on, uh, Rom probably wouldn't have performed as well with, <laughs> with the crowd on. He probably shouldn't have performed as well. But the other side is also... Um, Rom really did have a great mindset. He was focused on having fun. He was focused on just learning and trying. And when Cisco kicked him off the field, he was sad, but he also was pretty objective and just realized, well, you know, I'm actually not that good, but I support you guys. I want you guys to do your best. So it kind of does make sense that Rom, who wasn't great technically or had very much skill in baseball he could be kind of uplifted by the support of the crowd by the support of his team and then in this situation it may have actually helped Ron perform better okay yeah yeah mm -hmm. So Cisco, as you said, mm -hmm. um, kicked Rom off the team, which <laughs> yeah. is a very dramatic moment. Yeah. Cisco also had a, a bit of a temper, and maybe right. that was justified given the mm -hmm. situation and his background facing Solok, right. who has constantly angered Cisco right. in the past and done some pretty unfair things to mm -hmm. Ben. But could you help me evaluate Cisco's coaching and motivational style? Because I don't think I've ever had a coach that was quite as mm. um, angry as Cisco. Right. Right. What do you think? What did you make of his coaching style? Sure. I think in most situations, Cisco is actually a really great leader. But then when it came to this situation, he got caught up in emotionally driven behavior instead of value driven behavior. Starfeed is usually great at value driven behavior. But in this situation, he was really controlled by his emotion. He was angry and held resentment towards the Vulcan. He, um, he, he was allowing that to dictate his behavior. And he was also really, really focused on outcomes. And I know a lot of times we might hear something about like being results driven or results focused or whatever. But in sports, if you're focused on the outcome, then that's usually gonna hurt your performance. 
and if you're focused on the process, that's usually going to help your performance. So the outcome of like winning a baseball game is out of your control because you can perform to the best of your ability or imagine that you're the second best player in the world you're, or you're, you know, you're the second best at whatever and then you go up against the first best. Well, you're, there's a good chance you might lose. So even if you're the second best in the world or if you're the first best and you have a bad day, the outcome is out of your control. But what you can control is yourself and you can focus on the process. So with Cisco, he was really focused on beating those damn Vulcans. And then so what happened is he was getting angry because he wasn't getting the outcome that he wanted. He was getting frustrated with Nog, frustrated with Jake. Jake was the best player on the team, but he was, you know, just getting frustrated, telling Jake he needs to do better, telling, you know, things like that. But at different times, he kind of goes back to being process-focused. And at the end, he goes back to being process-focused where even though Rom isn't going to win the game, being focused on the spirit of sportsmanship and allowing Rom the chance to actually play, that uplifts the team's spirit. And then they're focused on just having fun, playing the game to the best of their ability, doing all those little things that they need to do in order to best get the outcome that they want. And they don't win the game, but they do uh, score a run, I believe. And then, you know, so you see right there, you focus on the process, and then that gives you the best chance to get the outcome that you want. That's really, really insightful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this idea of emotional versus value-driven motivation. And you're speaking about Cisco and how his emotions may have mm-hmm. been detrimental yeah. to not just his enjoyment of the game, right. uh, but also the outcome of the mm-hmm. game until he sort of switched back to this value-driven right. um, perspective. So I'm wondering, though, about the role of emotion possibly mm-hmm. being positive. So, sure. um, for example, Cisco tells Cassidy mm-hmm. about his whole backstory with Solok yeah. and how this is an adolescent rivalry <laughs> that goes back to the academy yeah. and how Solok was really critical of Cisco. Cisco yeah. and wrote psychological papers analyzing yeah. their um, their their times in the academy and how mm-hmm. it was super unfair to Cisco mm-hmm. and then uh, and then Cisco says to Cassidy, but don't tell the team this. Right. And of course she does. Right. She shares that information. You know, she said Ben told me not to yeah. tell you guys, but I'm going to tell you why right. he's so hung up on beating the Vulcans. Right. And that does have some kind of emotional resonance mm-hmm. with the rest of the crew yeah. and I think may have helped them perform better or at right. least brought themselves right. closer as a team mm-hmm. to you know maybe try just try a little bit harder sure. so so in what ways can emotions be both positive and a, and, a, and a negative yeah awesome question and I also I want to comment on that scene because I, I love that scene where Cisco is telling Cassidy you know something like, don't tell them promise me you won't tell them she says i promise in the very next scene she says okay he promised he made me promise not to tell you but here's what's going on i love that scene but uh yeah so great point and it's not necessarily that emotions are bad emotions can be great like if if you're passionate about something if you love something that can drive you to work harder yeah you can get into a flow state and just really love what you're doing and if you experience a trauma like uh, like Cisco did, and that's kind of back there. Um, you know, there can also be a, a dark side to sports where you have this like inner pain or this trauma from a long time ago or a setback, and that can also drive you to work really hard. The important part is that whether it's a painful emotion or a positive emotion, you're still 
engaging in value-driven behavior. So if we look at the DS9 crew, the, the Niners, they were feeling really beat down and kind of disappointed and frustrated with the way that Cisco was coaching them. And then they want to quit. They are kind of discouraged and don't want to work as hard. That's also emotionally driven behavior right there. And then when Cassidy discloses what Cisco went through, then they feel those positive emotions. They remember that they love Cisco and he's their, their friend and, and their beloved leader and all that. And then that helps them to get back on track with the value-driven behavior of just doing your best, working hard, and working together as a team. Excellent. I want to ask about Cisco choosing Odo as mm. the umpire for the game. And Odo's like, Umpire? That's right. Will you do it? Wouldn't a holographic umpire be more accurate? I don't want a computer program calling a baseball game. That's something Solak would do. I want a real person behind the plate, not just some collection of photons and magnetic fields. This just brought me into the present day, into the debate about whether or not sports should incorporate right. video replay technology right. and to what extent that they should, mm-hmm. because obviously video replay technology mm-hmm. will guarantee, mm-hmm. hopefully, that every single call is precisely right. correct. But when you play sports with a flesh and blood human being referee, right. there is a psychological aspect of sort of playing the right. referee, you know, right. getting in the referee's good graces mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe even uh, tricking the referee into making a call that right. was uh, beneficial to your team and detrimental to the other. Right. Uh, so what do, what do you think as a sports psychologist, should that aspect of sport be yeah. eliminated using mm. video replay technology? Yeah, that's that's a really hard question for me to answer. Like, I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, if it should be eliminated or not. Yeah, it's it's really hard to say. But I will say that if it's a part of the sport, then you do need to train for it, and it does become a part of your strategy and and what behaviors you engage in. Uh, for example, in in boxing or in MMA or just you know fighting sports. At the end of the last round, no matter what, as a fighter, you have to raise your hands in the air and look like you just won. Mm. And then maybe that sways the judges, maybe not. I don't know. And it also reminds me of something that someone in the field of sports psychology named Ken Revisa, who was a huge influence to the whole field, um, part of how he would help athletes is by just reminding them that umpires will make bad calls at, at times and if somebody gets really down then he would kind of shake them a little bit by saying something like are you really that bad of a player that you need every call to be good ah, you know, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Can, can you really not handle one bad call so like as an athlete you need to be prepared that you might get a bad call and that is outside of your control and if you're focused on things that are outside of your control you're going to be overwhelmed you're going to be discouraged all those things but if you're focused on what you can control then that's going to give you the best opportunity to get the outcome that you want nice nice and this flows right into my last question Mm -hmm. about this episode you know something Mm -hmm. that you can control is Mm -hmm. the bar at which you define success And at the end of the baseball game, the Deep Space Niners were all celebrating in Park's Bar. They're having a good time. Mm -hmm. Um, They're patting each other on the back because, you know, they scored a run against this very strong Vulcan team. And the Vulcan captain goes up to Ben Sisko and is like, I don't understand why you're celebrating. You lost the game 10 to 1. 
why do you have this sense of manufactured triumph? Right. And so from the perspective of a sports psychologist, what do you see the role of manufactured triumph right. in sports? And is, is that something that you work on constructing or is right. that something? Yeah. What do you think about that? Yeah, I love that scene because um, the, the Vulcan captain, he, he wasn't really playing baseball. He was playing a game of just trying to beat Cisco and demoralize him and kind of squash the joy out of Cisco playing this game that he loves. So on, on one hand, by, by just having fun and getting back to just the spirit of sportsmanship, he then beat Solok, or the, the Vulcan captain, at his own game. So I thought that was great. And then as far as... Um, you know, the manufactured triumph than just sports in general. Yeah, I think it's a really important part because um, sometimes, or maybe a lot of times, people can have an attitude that second place is just first loser. That can be motivating in a way that can help people, but it can also lead to a lot of negative feelings, a lot of anxiety, because, you know, there's only going to be one winner in the end. And again, that's completely focusing on the outcome which again is out of our control so i think it's really helpful to make sports more about self-improvement can you do better than you did before can you perform at the best of your ability a lot of athletes in general can relate to this idea that they don't want to beat themselves they don't want to lose to themselves by giving in to anxiety or giving in to other pressures when you lose to yourself a lot of times you end up being unable to sleep and just kind of staring at your ceiling the the night after. But when you perform at your very best and still don't get the outcome that you want, that's when you can rest easy at night and then just come back to win another day. Another instance of sport that we wanted to discuss was Picard's fencing match with Guinan in the TNG episode I Borg and Picard's overall mental game when it comes to facing the dreaded demons of his past. Let's switch gears now from Deep Space Nine to The Next Generation. Now, TNG doesn't Mm -hmm. have an entire episode dedicated to a sport (laughs) like uh, Deep Space Nine does, but um, Picard is very fond of fencing, and so he has a couple of fencing scenes, and one of the most important ones was when he was fencing Guinan, of all people, in the episode Mm -hmm. I, Borg, and Guinan was able to basically Mm -hmm. score a point on Picard by faking an injury. You all right? felt sorry for me. Look what it got you. So what does the field of sports psychology have to say about this kind of match? Sure, sure. Great question. First, when I was a little kid, I loved Guinan. And I think that probably had a a lot to do with me just being a kid and watching Sister Act and other stuff like that. So as a a little kid watching uh, Next Gen, I just loved Guinan. But uh, to go back to, to sports, so that's a, that's a great question. And in sort of re-watching that scene and watching it not just from a fan but from the sports psychology perspective, a couple things happened. So first, as they're fencing, Picard you know, scores a point. And then they take a break and they start talking and they're talking about what to do with this. Pro- this scene takes place 
with the backdrop of you know a problem with the Borg, and uh, as we as we know, Guinan was um, her home planet or her people were destroyed by the Borg. Picard was um, assimilated for a short period of time, so they both have these major traumas going on um, in the background. So to go back to the the fencing scene. First, Picard kind of easily outmaneuvers Guinan and and touches her with his uh, foil or whatever it is. And then they sit down and they're talking about uh, about what to do with the Borg. And then Guinan gets, if I'm remembering right, she gets under his skin a little bit. And you can see him just a little bit visibly upset. And then he says, uh, let's go again. And, the, <laughs> and he kind of rushes back into, uh, into fencing. So one thing that happens a lot in sports that is very important is people get upset, people get discouraged or they face a setback, and then they try to rush through to the next thing. Mm -hmm. And then that's oftentimes going to be bad for performance. It's like when you're driving and you see a yellow light and then you just gun it. (laughs) (laughs) It's dangerous. Right, it's dangerous. That yellow light is telling you, Okay, pretty soon there's going to be a red light, so you need to, you know, take a breath, look around, assess the situation, think, am I going to just go for it? Is that okay? Is that safe? Or do I need to hit my bricks? So Picard got a yellow light right there, and instead of assessing the situation and taking a breath, he dives right into the next the next sparring session, and then that's when Guinan fakes the injury and then touches him. And you could say that she was cheating. You could say that um, that that was outside the the parameters of the of the match. But you know, she did it, and she scored the touch. And um, if Picard took that breath, if Picard took a moment to assess the situation, he may have acted differently, and she may have not been able to uh, to touch him. Mm-hmm. So that's just that's something that does play out a lot in sports, where someone rushes to do something, and then maybe they fall for a trick. Maybe the person just is just better, but they needed to take that moment to just breathe and assess the situation. Yeah, like you said, Picard and Guinan, they mm-hmm. go way back in terms mm-hmm. of their relation with the Borg. Mm-hmm. The Borg are almost like Picard's right. arch nemesis. Right. And uh, he even has to face them in a movie, right. <laughs> um, right. in, in First Contact. And it's not really a, mm-hmm. a sports match there, but Picard does get really riled up right. in, in one of the scenes. He's uh, likened to Captain Ahab mm-hmm. hunting his whale. Yeah. And so he gets super emotional yeah. over this thing. All Almost in the same way that Ben Sisko got really emotional over right. Captain Solok and their mm-hmm. history. Right. So I was wondering um, if you wanted to talk about First Contact and how Picard behaved in that movie as well. Sure, sure. And one of the great things about uh, First Contact and one of the great things about that fencing match between Guinan and uh, Picard is that it takes place within this wider context of these very traumatic experiences with the Borg. And oftentimes that's exactly how sports are. So I really appreciated that looking at it from a sports psychology perspective. Because, you know, in a best case scenario, you're just having fun playing sports, just competing and doing your best. But oftentimes there's these greater contexts where there's turmoil in the world, where your competing team might be from an unfriendly community that you're, you're a rivalry with, or oftentimes you know, athletes that I've worked with, they are competing 
while they also struggle with these traumas that they've experienced. You know, they've had family issues, they've um, been dealing with uh, major depressive disorder. Um, unfortunately, now it's even more common for athletes to be survivors of mass shootings. That's something that I never anticipated dealing with in, in the field of sports psychology, but that is something that uh, infor- unfortunately is becoming more and more common. So for the fencing match and for you know Picard's performance as a leader to take place with the, that backdrop of these really traumatic experiences is actually something that is sort of a normal part of sports now. So now to get back to Picard's performance as a leader, one of the things that I noticed is that um, Picard's decision-making skills are a very important part of his performance. Because he was assimilated, he had all this knowledge about the Borg and their, you know, their weaknesses and their strengths and their habits. It's kind of like he did great recon and he was watching all kinds of film on the Borg. He was probably planning to battle the Borg for years and in his mind he was probably just mentally mapping out I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna do this, it's gonna be great. And the, the, the Borg adapt very quickly and they can shut down whatever offense you're trying to start very quickly and that kind of reminds me of the sport of rugby to take it back to sports psychology. So I'm not an expert in rugby but my understanding is that in rugby they have captains or they have leaders who on the field make decisions about what's going to happen. So in sports psychology they'll help rugby players make better decisions in the moment. So they'll do things like watching film, pause it, and then try to predict what is the team going to do, and then start it again, and you kind of see how your predictions came out. And I can really see Picard, like, in his mind, mentally, just mapping out, like, the board are going to do this, then I'm going to do that, and then the board will do this. <laughs> I am never going to watch that movie the same way again, because I'm playing that in my mind, like, oh, Picard is trying to outguess the Borg and stay one yeah. step ahead. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And the, the other thing that I noticed that was great was you could really see the importance of team dynamics when you look at Picard's performance because Data is the MVP. He's always the best at everything. And when Picard was fighting the Borg, he had Data, he had Worf, and then he essentially had you know a bunch of red shirts. But Picard loses Data really early on. The Borg get him. The Borg are trying to seduce him. They're, do- they're doing whatever they're doing. And then now it's Picard and Worf. And then Worf is much more of just a traditional, straightforward soldier. You tell me who you want dead, and I will destroy my enemies. <laughs> death to the opposition. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Death to the opposition. You know? And that, that's going great for a little while, and Picard is making great decisions. He's doing value-driven behavior. But then Picard's not getting the outcomes that he wants. He's not just immediately shutting down the Borg, and then he gets more and more frustrated, and he keeps sending Worf out again and again to beat those bad guys. And the team dynamics were important because if Data was there, if Riker was there, if Troy was there, then Picard would have sort of more checks and balances, and he may have realized that he wasn't acting based off of value sooner, and then possibly Maybe he would have performed better as a leader. Maybe less red shirts would have been lost. Maybe they would have beat the Borg even sooner. But it's, you know, we don't know these things. We can just focus on the process and, you know, and then hopefully that'll get us the outcome that we want. 
That's a really great analysis. Mm. I've never heard first contact spoken about that way before. <laughs> and so the, the whole takeaway, I guess, from this conversation mm. is focus on value-driven behavior. Right. And don't let your emotions get the best of you in the right. moment, even though it's so easy for you to start getting riled up in them. Right. Maybe you're linking what's happening in the present to some yeah. traumatic event in the past. Right. But through your teammates and through mm. your own uh, mental mindfulness right. and cognition just to remember the reasons why you're doing these right. things uh, and to focus on those values that you hold true and dear and right. that you will uh, use to really assess the success of the yeah. situation in hindsight later yeah. on to remind yourself of those things so that they mm -hmm. are the reason why you do things and that could help you in so many different ways right. whether you're Tilly trying to push through pain right. or uh, whether you're trying to beat Vulcans right. <laughs> in baseball yeah. Right. Or, or defeat the Borg right. using limited resources when you're trapped right. in uh, post-World War III <laughs> orbit of Earth. Right. Yeah, no, so this, this is so great. I've like yeah. I've never really spoken mm -hmm. to a sports psychologist before, mm -hmm. and I feel like I've learned so much oh, about, about just how to phrase mm -hmm. certain things about my own life because right. I love sports and I've been playing sports yeah. ever since I was a little kid. And, yeah. and I think that I'll take away some really amazing lessons for mm. just my own life right yeah. here. And I love how Star Trek inspires these types of conversations yeah. and to analyze our mm -hmm. favorite science fiction show, mm -hmm. but also use that as a reflecting right. uh, piece for our own lives. So right. Jason, thank you so much for joining me for Strange New Worlds. And... Um, Go Niners! <laughs> <laughs> that concludes episode 62 of Strange New Worlds. What a pleasure it was to talk to Dr. Jason Von Stietz about his field of sports psychology and how it relates to Star Trek and to life in general. Whether I'm on the field, in my office, or just hanging out with my friends— I'll definitely try to be a little more conscious of my own motivations going forward and make sure that I'm performing value-driven behavior. All of us can get a little hot-tempered sometimes. We all lose our cool, stomp on our hats, make a fuss. That's just human. But when those things happen, we need to take a step back, realize what's going on, take a few deep breaths, assess the situation, and remind ourselves why we're doing what we're doing. We want to be captain one day, or maybe we love baseball, or maybe because we are defending the ideals of the Federation, not seeking revenge. Until next time, I'll see you out there. anticipating this Picard show. I know, yeah. I know. I was thinking, like, in the opening scene, am I going to just start crying? Yeah, <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> 
I think the answer is yes. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> Letting the emotions get the best of yeah. you. Or maybe for the best reasons. Like those right. values are back and that's why. Right. So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah.